So uh, I, I, I got a haircut recently, as some of you have noticed. And I, as I was getting my haircut, the uh, barber, who is uh, not a particularly religious person, we were talking about things of faith, but he mentioned a number of life events recently, and he was pondering if somehow these things happening in his life were somehow a sign from God or some sort of higher power. <clears throat> and as I've been preparing for this sermon over the past couple of weeks, I've wondered, if God were to act, what would it take for everyone around our country to recognize that God was the one who did it? I thought of the various reactions if God did something remarkable. There's obviously the doubters, the people who will never attribute an action to God. Maybe it's market forces, or there's a sociological explanation, or some kind of phenomenon. You'd have the pundits who would point out the various conflicts between rival parties. And then you'd have the scammers who are always claiming that God did something as long as they could end up possibly making a buck over it. And then I thought, who consistently identifies acts of God in our modern society? <clears throat> and I concluded that it is insurance companies. According to insurance companies, we've already officially witnessed multiple officially documented miracles in Santa Barbara this year. In our passage this morning, we're going to read about when God showed up and how he made himself known in ancient Israel. So hear the word of the Lord this morning from Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Here is my servant whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to idols. See, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them, the word of the Lord. So before we dive in, as we had a little break last week with Bishop Kenny Martin, let's consider the context of this passage to get us caught up to speed. If we look back to the previous chapter, to Isaiah 41.1, we have, let my people draw near for judgment. And now if we look at a repetition of themes, we find them here. We find three times, do not fear, in verses 10 
13 and 14. Now, if God were to come and say, hey, let's draw near for judgment, and then said, do not fear, there, there might be a little disconnect between the feelings of those two things, right? Then we have language and illustrations of judgment or justice-oriented motifs, a threshing floor, a winnowing hook. We have God meeting the needs of the poor and needy and environmental restoration. But then it takes a turn at the end of the chapter towards idols, false gods, and those who follow them. Where some today might blame acts of God on market forces at work, some in ancient Israel might blame it on the work of idols and false gods. So this is Yahweh coming in to say, no, this is me working here. Looking a bit after our passage, in verses 10 through 20, we see Isaiah move into teaching theology through a song. And we stay in the themes about concern over idols, with further mention of the deaf, deaf listening and the blind seeing. Turning now directly to our passage in the immediate context, who is God speaking to here? This passage is not fundamentally about individuals, you or me, or one-on-one -on -one conflict resolution. Rather, the audience of this particular passage is a nation, the people of ancient Israel. And what is God speaking about? Fundamentally, God is distinguishing himself from false gods and idols. And the recurring theme here in this passage is justice as the differentiator between the one true God and the false gods that some had placed their faith in. So today we're going to unpack the basics of what biblical justice is, what justice looks like in this passage, and what it means for us. And before we dive into the details, if you are someone whose mind tends to wander during sermons, that's okay by me. I want to give you something to think about while we're unpacking this directly. We often describe God as a good and loving parent. That's one of our Wesleyan paradigms for God. I want you to imagine being in a house and the kids are playing in another room and hearing one of these phrases shouted from one of the kids in the other room. That's not fair. She hit me. But mama said I could. And then I want you to imagine how a good and loving parent might come by and respond to one of these situations. Again, we often understand God in the paradigm of a loving parent, and here we read God coming into a situation to do justice, and what does that mean? Before we get into the specific examples of justice, we're going to first go over the words used here to, uh, to describe justice, what they mean, because they could sometimes be loaded or overlooked, but they're important concepts. In English, the words we're going to look at that describe this concept in some form are judgment, righteousness, justice, and sometimes in this context, we might also talk about mercy. Judgment, justice, and righteousness are all specifically mentioned in our passage today. Now, judgment is a word and concept that is just no longer fashionable in the church. It used to be incredibly fashionable, especially in the holiness tradition from where our church comes. You used to have people that would come to church just prepared to get their licking. Lay it on me, preacher. They'd come to church, say, lay it on me, preacher. Give it to me straight. And we did effectively produce a church that was good at creating more and more rules. 
and being proudly known for legalism. But we didn't necessarily get a church that was always effective at bringing forth true justice. But these types of sermons that passionately proclaimed judgment against anyone who dared to wear short sleeves, I didn't intentionally pick long sleeves today, used to be a crowd pleaser, and it no longer is. And it's really hard to imagine why, isn't it? Unfortunately, this means that we no longer talk about justice, uh, about judgment as much, but it is in the Bible, so we need to talk about it. I want to be clear that today we're not talking about judgment in terms of hell. That would be getting ahead of ourselves for whoever gets to preach in Isaiah 66. (laughs) But that isn't the specific type of judgment we're talking about today. The kind of judgment that we're talking about today is the kind talked about in 41.1. Let us draw near together for judgment. Listen to this type of language. Let us together. This type of language is called an entreaty. This is not a quickly angered, ever vengeful God who is just abruptly showing up with fire to rain down on anyone. He's not a God who is eagerly looking for someone to punish. This entreaty language means that God is saying, we're going to have a conversation and figure out what's going on here together. To better frame God's passion in the context of judgment, let's consider when God speaks to David in 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 15, about his son Solomon. God says, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. It's God's love that won't let us stay in error. This is part of good parenting, right? You want to correct the errors of your children before they become more and more egregious and they carry them into adulthood. We don't read from this an eagerness for punishment. God isn't an abusive parent who is looking to blow off some steam with violence. He is a loving parent who wants who wants to correct someone when they are in error. Moving on now to righteousness in verse 6, we read that we are called into righteousness. Many years ago when I was back in undergrad at Taylor University, before I had studied Hebrew or Greek, I took a course on inductive study of the Bible. And one of the most memorable assignments was that we we're to use a concordance from the library and find every time that the Bible used the word righteous, righteousness. And then imagine that we didn't know what the word meant at all, but give a def- definition of what it meant solely based on the context that it was used. Now, I grew up as a particular kind of Baptist, in a particular kind of Baptist tradition. Some of you are laughing because you know where this is going. And I had an understanding of what righteousness was and what it and, and, and a concept of this, it probably meant a well-dressed person who spoke softly, never used swear words, and probably listened to some Bill Gaither if he ever needed to cut loose. Now, two things I learned from doing that assignment is that righteousness is all over the Bible, and that in every case that it is used, it is about justice. So I want you to think of righteousness not as some pious nothing, but I want you to think of it as doing right by someone or making things right. 
It's a much more practical way of looking at righteousness and helps frame it in terms of justice because that's fundamentally what it is, is a relational concept. It's not a strictly personal thing. And this is nothing against the Gaithers. Now lastly, let's look at how justice is used here. In verses 2 and 3, it is brought forth. In verse 4, it is established. It takes effort for justice to happen. There is an agency here. I want to look at what justice looks like biblically. Now, words, when they're popular, can mean a lot of things for a lot of different people. Judgment is not popular right now, but justice is. There are plenty of examples of injustice in our society that people tend to go to. However, right now, I want to look at what justice means specifically in this passage. When God shows up, there is justice happening. What does that mean? For one, it is clear what justice isn't here. And that is the outcomes of following these false gods. Psalm 82 is a very interesting psalm. In it, Yahweh visits the council of El, a Canaanite god. An epitaph for El, the Canaanite god, was most high. And Yahweh tells El and these gods, these Canaanite gods, he basically tells them that they're going to be history because of their associations with injustice. Yahweh is speaking, and in the psalm says, I said you are gods, children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. In other words, God might have let people for a time believe that certain events were caused by various gods, but God will no longer tolerate injustice justified in the names of these false gods. He is putting a stop to it. So this is one way that God is showing up to do justice, getting rid of the idols that were used to justify the injustice. Look at how God himself acts. A bruised reed he won't break. A dimly burning wick he won't quench. God doesn't just throw the most vulnerable under the bus here in his quest for fame. He opens the eyes of the blind. He brings out the prisoners out from their dungeons. God is doing acts that seem impossible to us. He's going against nature and the power of the state to do these things. Justice is a powerful thing when it rolls in. These are also inherently acts of mercy. So God is using both judgment and mercy as tools by which to enact justice. And lastly, we read in our passage that the former things have come to pass and God has declared new things. This means that when God shows up to meet with us over judgment and inquires about injustice, that the defense of, but this is how we've always done it, isn't going to fly. I didn't hear an amen. I wanted to hear an amen on that one. Thank you. Now let's consider what this kind of justice means for us, for you and me sitting here. Um, we're going to look at we're going to look at it in the context of the gospel and in the church, and then what it means for you and me. In the gospel, we see that God is not a hot-headed God desiring punishment, but He does desire correction. In John three seventeen, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, He says, "For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world." 
but to save the world through him. We are given some examples of this in the gospel, including one that Bishop Martin brought up last week, that of the wealthy tax collector Zacchaeus, who repented, made things right with those he had defrauded by paying them back fourfold, and was saved from his sinful errors. We also see justice as a main theme in what Jesus says about him own self. In the Gospel of Luke, after the temptation in the wilderness and baptism by John, Jesus launches his ministry in a synagogue, reading from a scroll. And he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Luke tells us that this scroll was from Isaiah, and it sounds a lot like our passage today, doesn't it? In 42.2, we see, I will put my spirit on him. In verses 7 and 8, we read about opening the eyes of the blind and prisoners being set free from dungeons. This is how Jesus kicks off his ministry, by quoting Isaiah about justice. Later, John the Baptist sends some people to inquire if Jesus really is the chosen Messiah. Can you imagine, of all the things that Jesus has said and done, what he would choose to say to justify himself? This is what Jesus' self-defense is that he sends back. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with a skin disease are cleansed. The deaf here, the dead are raised. The poor have good news brought to them, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. That last part is particularly interesting as justice work is so often inherently offensive as it upsets power dynamics and mechanisms that people use to one-up one another. Now let's consider the kind of justice, this kind of justice in the church. In our case as Methodists, we trace our beginnings back to the Reverend John Wesley, an Anglican priest. John Wesley fought for prison reform during his lifetime, among many other things. And he regularly visited the debtor's prison in England as one of the activities built into his holy club, out of which would eventually develop and become known as the Methodist Church. In the theme with Isaiah on singing theology, in a preface to a hymnal, no less, John Wesley wrote against the notion that one could be a strictly individual, pious, holy person simply by means of contemplation. Whether holiness requires engagement on issues of justice, he writes, holy solitaires is a phrase no more consistent with the gospel than holy idolaters. Uh, I'm sorry, holy adulterers. The gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social, no holiness but social holiness. Faith working by love is the length and breadth and depth and height of Christian perfection. These themes are present in the Free Methodist Church, both in its inception until now. We are fundamentally meant to be a denomination that is oriented toward the poor and on social matters. Did you know that the Free Methodist Church is engaged right now on issues around setting prisoners free from the dungeon? 
at General Conference just this year, a proposed amendment to the Book of Discipline was brought by none other than our own Ben Wayman. Now, the Book of Discipline is essentially what defines who we are, what we, what we believe, and how we do things as free Methodists. And this is a short excerpt of the final text of the proposal. Although free Methodists submit to the justice systems of their time and place, we do not unwittingly affirm their understanding of or approach to justice. Such systems should be in a continual process of review and revision toward achieving justice that is equitable and seeks a common good. We especially lament the ways in which such systems incarcerate, target, and treat particular demographics disproportionately. Free Methodists oppose any system that demeans, abuses, depersonalizes, or enslaves human beings, treating them as less than human. We are accordingly committed to justice systems that protect and defend victims of harm without violating the dignity of those punished. That's a powerful statement. I, I'll, I'll give an amen to that as well. And lastly, I want to talk about what this means for us in this room. Fundamentally, we should be concerned about justice because God is concerned about justice. This is part of his identity, who he has revealed himself to be about. And so if we are his followers, it is also something for us to be about as well. This is part of the package that comes along with following Jesus. It is also sometimes easier to identify injustice in someone else than we see it in ourselves. We have so many examples of companies and politicians doing bad things and people debating those bad things. It's a lot harder to see and own when we are the ones doing the unjust things. We need to listen and be responsive when God calls us in to draw near for judgment and trust that when God does this, that it's coming from a place of God's love for us, that he won't tolerate us continuing to live in sin and in error, and that he wants something better for us than how we might be currently living and treating other people around us. Now we have a political election coming up, as you all know, and it's certain to stoke certain divisions. I want to challenge you to think about this and note that Sure, voting is an important civic duty. I'm not saying don't do it or ignore it. But I want to I suggest that how you practice righteousness, doing right by others, is likely to have a bigger impact in our world than which box you might check next year, especially if you're voting in California. If we all spent as much energy on debating about various political teams as we did figuring out how to treat the people around us better, the world would be a much better place, wouldn't it? So I want to invite you this morning to the altar. If you're feeling convicted this morning, you're feeling like God is telling you to come, let's, let's talk about judgment together to bring that forward this morning. And I also want to invite those who you've come in today and you might feel like you're a bruised reed or your wick is burning dimly this morning to come and be prayed for for a blessing of mercy here this morning. 
And in closing, just as Isaiah followed up with this passage with the song that teaches theology, I want to end with one as well. In the reflection of God's justice and great love and mercy for us, take a moment to pause and reflect and meditate on this verse from the beloved old Welsh hymn, Here is Love. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy, Load a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.